0: Hi everyone! My name is Thiago, I'm a graduate student at Princeton University, and I'm your host. The Highlights is a sister podcast to Princeton Insights in collaboration with The Daily Princetonian. Insights is a newsletter written by Princeton undergrad, grad student, and postdocs. We write about the most exciting and groundbreaking research being conducted here at Princeton in the form of short, fun, and easy-to-read reviews. We cover a range of topics including psychology, neuroscience, biology, computer science, and physics to name a few. Make sure to check out our website at insights.princeton.edu. Right now, I'll receive my fellow graduate student, Juram Ali. Say hi, Juram.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here to chat with Professor Mary Cassie Stoddard about her paper on the visual capabilities of wild hummingbirds. I wrote about this in a recent article for Princeton Insights, so do check that out on the Princeton Insights website. I'm thrilled to introduce Cassie, who also happens to be my advisor, to the podcast. Cassie Stoddard is an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. She joined the Princeton faculty in 2016 following a postdoc at Harvard and her PhD work at the University of Cambridge. The Stoddard lab investigates animal coloration and color vision, especially in birds. I think we're in for a real treat today. Welcome, Cassie.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Nice to meet you, Cassie. I've noticed that your lab studies sensory information in birds, is that something you were always interested in or is it something that showed up later in your career?
2: You know, I, I was always interested in birds. Um, or at least I was interested in birds from a young age. My grandma and my mom taught me to identify birds uh, when I was growing up. So I was always very curious about the natural world and, and always curious about birds. But I'd say that my interest in sensory ecology and sensory systems didn't really kick off until college. Um, I was a, a freshman. I was able to take this really cool freshman seminar course that allowed us to conduct research in the collections, kind of the behind the scenes collections of a natural history museum. And I gravitated toward the ornithology collections and I started working on a project on bird coloration and color vision. And it was then that I really started to learn that birds could see colors that that humans can't. And that idea that you could quantify and measure and tap into a sensory world of other animals, um, even when it's beyond the sensory experience of humans, really excited me and captured my imagination. So I've been very lucky, I think, with uh, with birds uh, to be able to continue that kind of line of research. Oh, that's really exciting.
1: So, Cassie, you started this uh, associate professor position at Princeton in the past few years. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about how the transition went from postdoctoral researcher to faculty? And and maybe also tell us what you like best about being a professor.
2: Sure. Uh, well, I've really loved building a lab uh, here at Princeton. I, I think just getting to work with so many talented students and postdocs on a daily basis is very exciting and it's really a privilege. So I think that collaborative aspect of working in a lab and doing this research together has absolutely been the best part of being a professor. Of course, there are a lot of new things that you learn when you become a professor and and some of what you do changes along the way. So so when I was a postdoc, um, I was able to dive into a project for days and days and days at a time, and I found that really rewarding. And now I have other responsibilities that mean that sometimes I, I can't go off and, and really read or study or write code for days at a time, but I have other folks in the lab who who can do that, uh, and that's been really great. It
0: must be really hard being a professor. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's, it's wonderful though. I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of learning on the job, but it's it's very exciting to be able to to do this research and also to teach. I teach a sensory ecology class for undergrads and I was able to develop that course when I arrived at Princeton and it's been a blast really teaching that. I've enjoyed so much getting to know the the Princeton undergrads and getting to share with them some of my favorite examples of cool animal behavior in the sensory sensory realm. And uh, that's been, been very rewarding.
1: So having been a TA for the sensory ecology course, and this is something you mentioned already, birds can see colors that humans can't. Can you tell us why studying this aspect of bird vision is important and exciting to you, Cassie?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess... To take a step back, we we do think that birds can see uh, a whole range of colors that humans can't. So we think that the birds out there see the world quite differently. That's because we humans have three color cone types in our eyes. So our color cone types are sensitive to blue and green and red light. But birds have a fourth color cone type in their eyes, and it's sensitive to ultraviolet light. This fourth color cone type is interesting for two reasons. The first is that it extends the spectrum of visible colors for birds. So if you're a bird looking up at the rainbow, uh, you can see all the colors a human can see, sort of Roy G. Biv in the rainbow, but you can probably also see some ultraviolet tacked on on the end. The second reason this ultraviolet sensitive cone is cool is that it probably provides birds with an extra dimension of color perception relative to humans. And that's because this UV cone should allow birds to see a vast range of combination colors like UV green and UV red. So with this fourth color cone type that we lack, birds can not only see a greater range of colors, but they can see, um, you know, combination colors for which we humans completely lack a vocabulary. And so if you you know if you think about how important it is to understand how birds evolved, um, how to best protect and conserve bird biodiversity, we really have to understand their visual experience and a big part of that is recognizing that we humans don 't see everything that birds see, and so developing the kinds of imaging tools and cameras and computational tools for capturing, describing, and analyzing bird color, even though we don't see it ourselves, um, is really important for getting a a clear look at what the bird experience is like. Nice. You've mentioned
0: that there's combinations of colors. Is it like multiple cones will be activated and then the combination will generate a different color? Is that how it works?
2: That's how we think it works, yes. So in humans, um, all the colors we can see arise from the the combination of stimulation of our our red cone types, our blue cone types, and our green cone types. Now, it's really interesting when we're thinking about birds with their fourth color cone type is that they probably can see a lot of non-spectral colors. And when we say non-spectral, we're talking about a combination color that arises when the color cones are stimulated by light from widely separated parts of the color spectrum. So for humans, we really have one major type of non-spectral color, and that's purple. Technically, purple is not in the rainbow. It arises when our blue or short wave cone types and our red long wave cone types are stimulated at the same time, but not our green cones. So we humans have this, you know, experience of seeing purple, Uh, I'm looking at, uh, you know, purple piece of paper right now. It's it's a real color to us, but it's actually not a spectral color in the rainbow. Birds can theoretically see a bunch more of these non-spectral colors. So they have up to five different non-spectral color types. They've got purple, they've got UV red, they have UV green, UV yellow, and UV purple. And so uh, that, that became something really interesting to us that birds might be able to, to see and experience these non-spectral colors, only one of which we really can uh, can visualize, which is purple.
0: When you mentioned that, I was thinking about the mantis shrimp, because I read somewhere that they have like a lot of cones. So does that mean that they are able to see way more colors than
2: humans? Okay, that's an excellent question. Mantis shrimp are... Um, you know, they're famous in the color vision world, and that's because they have 12 different photoreceptors that are used for color, you know, compared to four in birds and three in humans. So you might think then that the mantis shrimp has this exceptional 12-dimensional color vision system and can therefore see an unthinkable number of colors including tons of these non-spectral colors (laughs) yes you might think that and and for many of us we, we thought that for a long time but interestingly a study came out several years ago showing that mantis shrimp color vision isn't quite as refined as we expected so in some color discrimination tasks where Uh, scientists expected the mantis shrimps to perform very well, they actually performed uh, less well than than humans did. And so that's not to knock the mantis shrimp. I think the mantis shrimp still has a really cool color vision system. But what scientists think now is that uh, they have an unconventional color vision system that's probably prioritizing really efficient processing over really detailed color discrimination. So this mantis shrimp is probably able to look at a scene and almost scan the environment and compare um, colors that it might recognize and prey to uh, to sort of a uh, almost like a lookup table. And in that way, make quick, efficient decisions about what an object might be, rather than having really refined color discrimination where it can distinguish between uh, you know, a blue-green color and a slightly different blue-green color. So all that is to say um, that we're learning a ton more about how mantis shrimp color vision really works and it remains uh, mysterious and exciting and strange. And so I, I think, uh, you know, ask again in five years and, and hopefully uh, sensory ecologists will know a lot more about about the mantis shrimp.
1: <laughs> so So far we've heard, you know, humans have three cone types, Birds have four, the mantis shrimp has a bajillion. How variable are visual systems across the animal kingdom?
2: Um, Color vision systems are quite variable. So some animals have uh, one color cone type, some have two. Most mammals have two color cone types. We're kind of lucky uh, as as primates to have three color cone types. Uh, Birds uh, and some other animals have four color cone types. Butterflies can have up to nine color cone types, uh, some of which they can kind of turn on and off um, for different behaviors. Mantis shrimp have twelve. So there, you know, if you're looking at the number of color cone types or color photoreceptors, uh, these do vary tremendously across the animal um, kingdom. the The wavelengths of light that animals are sensitive to also vary. So some animals with those those photoreceptors can detect ultraviolet light. Um, but not red light, for example, and and some animals have better long wave sensitive vision, so can see plenty plenty well in the the red um, and yellow part of the spectrum, but but not well in the UV. So I think that uh, you know one thing that's been really fun as a sensory ecologist to appreciate is is that you could have five different animals in the same meadow, and they all are experiencing that meadow in really different ways. They can see different colors in that in that meadow, and. Um, we now have, you know, technology cameras that we can use to go out and quantify those colors and then model them, simulate how they might look to these different animals. And I guess another thing I would say about the evolution of color vision in, uh, in animals is, is, is that a lot, a lot of times people ask me, you know, why did birds win the lottery? How did they get to be so lucky with this fourth ultraviolet sensitive cone type? And if you look at the evolutionary history of color vision in vertebrates, it looks like um, the tetrapod ancestor, you know, some 300 million years ago, had these four color cone types. Uh, the condition that's been retained in modern birds, it looks like early in mammal evolution, two of those color cone types were lost. And in some primates, a third color cone type was evolved, re-evolved, acquired, yes, through through duplication of one of the existing cone types. So it's not really that um, the birds won the lottery at all. They've just hung on to this ancient color vision system. Uh, and it's rather that we we humans have suffered from our early mammalian history um, that occurred during a time when mammals were mostly nocturnal and, and had no need for a sophisticated color vision system. Um, so we kind of have this piecemeal basic color vision system compared to what, what birds, uh, have today. So
1: you started talking to us about non-spectral colors, and we really want to talk to you about your 2020 paper, uh, that discusses wild birds having this ability to discriminate between non-spectral colors. Um, How do you go about trying to solve this problem of if birds were seeing non-spectral colors and if they could tell the differences?
2: Yeah, we were very excited to to test this out in hummingbirds, and in wild hummingbirds. And that's because hummingbirds require very little training um, with respect to color vision experiments. They've evolved to be sensitive to color, the colors of of flowers. Um, They feed often from feeders. And so we were able to capitalize on this by going to the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. We do this work at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory or Rumble as it's affectionately known. And we set up some experiments right there in in an open meadow so that we could test color discrimination in wild hummingbirds. To do this, we designed special LED light tubes that can display these bird visible colors we've been talking about. So these light tubes can produce a UV green color or a UV red color. And we call these tubes the tetracolor tubes because they can produce colors visible to a tetrachromatic animal. That's an animal like a bird that has these four color cone types. In the past, it's been really hard to design light displays that can produce these complex combination colors So for us, this was a technical advance that opened up a lot of new possibilities, especially uh, in the field. I have a question
0: about these bulbs. When we humans look at these bulbs, do they look like whatever's closer in the spectrum, like green, or do they look like a bulb that is off?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So if I set up, let's say I have two tubes, and one tube is, is producing green light, and the other tube is producing UV green light, Those two tubes will look identical to us. I can't tell the difference. They both look green. So we we can't detect the the UV. Um, If we have the UV light on and uh, it's next to one that's off, we really can't see that UV yeah, if you really squint, the UV is probably bleeding a little bit into the, into the blue wavelengths. And you can, you can tell that maybe something tiny is, is on there, but we are really blind to that ultraviolet light. So if it's UV versus off, both tubes will look off. And so we're able to produce these colors uh, and measure them and convince ourselves that, yep, yeah, we've, we've made UV green. But in fact, it looks identical uh, to a green color to us. And that was what was so uh, just thrilling about doing these experiments is that to a human, you know, asking the birds to discriminate between UV green and green, you know, we were like, ah, eh, these look exactly the same, but over the course of several hours, this population of birds could easily distinguish between these two colors that looked identical to us. And, you know, we, we know from from past research that birds are sensitive to the UV, so we fully expected them to be able to make this this discrimination, but there was something really magical about seeing it with your own eyes. I mean, there's, there's kind of knowing it and then there's seeing it. And the seeing it for me was, uh, was really exciting and uh, it gave me a real rush. Um, so that's what's going on with these tetracolor light tubes. We then set up two feeders. So we have our two light tubes and we have two feeders. One feeder contains sugar. Uh, sugar water and the other contains just water. So we place the feeder next to the LED light tube. So you can imagine looking out into the meadow uh, on a tripod, each tripod is holding a feeder and next to that feeder is a light tube. The experiments would proceed with a kind of color of the day, a rewarded color of the day. So the tube next to the sugar water would display the rewarded color, let's say that's UV green, Well, the tube next to the water would display a different color and we could say that color is green. Because we didn't want the birds just to memorize the spatial position of the feeders and the tubes, we swapped the position of the tubes and the feeders after a fixed interval. So if the birds wanted to find the sugar water they had to learn to pay attention to where that rewarded color was because it was moving.
1: Cassie, is it possible that these birds were using smell to find the sugar versus the the water?
2: Yes, we did consider that possibility because of course they might not be using color. They could be using smell or they could be copying each other and using some kind of social learning. Um, And so to To make sure that that wasn't the case, we did a series of control experiments. And in these controls, we had the tetracolor light tubes, both tubes display identical colors. So one tube would display green and the other would display green, but one of the tubes would be next to a feeder with sugar water, and one of the tubes would be next to a feeder with water. And we'd go about the experiment swapping the positions just as we would any other experiment. If the birds were using smell or some other cue and ignoring color, then they should be able to find the sugar water under this kind of control experiment. But they didn't. They performed no better than chance um, when we were using identical colored lights, which suggested to us, like, few, they're not using smell, Um, they're not using social learning, or if they are, they're doing it to uh, a negligible sort of effect.
1: So so in these control experiments, birds were basically kind of
2: guessing. Basically, the number of birds going to feeder one versus feeder two was just a 50-50 split. So we don't think that they were doing anything better than random chance when they no longer had an informative color signal. And these kinds of controls are really important for exactly the reason you, you mentioned that there are many things that can be influencing the choices these birds are making in the field. Um, and, and we tried to do our best to a- account for those by, by doing and repeating this kind of control experiment.
0: What are some of the challenges or funny stories that you have of field work or working with wild animals?
2: Well, I think you you said it exactly. Field work is always unpredictable, especially up in the Rocky Mountains, uh, where it can and has snowed in June. So sometimes we, we go up there, we don't know what to expect. Um, we work for really long hours and we have to be prepared to deal with finicky technology. In the middle of a meadow, and so sometimes these LED light tubes would would break, and we'd be out there with a soldering iron trying to fix them on the fly. Um, we've had moose wander through our field site. We're very friendly with the marmots oh, wow. <laughs> who live nearby. So We've got marmots living in the shack where we store our equipment. So, um, so every day is different, um, but extremely extremely rewarding. And uh, the field site is a is a very beautiful place and. I felt lucky to do the work there and also lucky to work with a really uh, great team uh, on this on this project. We had many collaborators, some from Princeton, some from other universities, and, and we couldn't have done it without this team effort. That's cool.
1: Yeah, Cassie, I, I was wondering, this experiment sort of suggests that these birds are seeing non-spectral colors, is this definite proof that they're that that's what they're doing, or is there more work to be done to kind of make sure that that's the case?
2: Well, there's definitely more work to be done. Um, I think that, you know, even though we've assumed for a long time that birds can discriminate a variety of these non-spectral colors, our results suggest that this is indeed the case. But it's a lot harder to answer the question, you know, what, what do these colors really look like to birds? Um, what what is UV red to a bird? Uh, you know, does it, does it look like red? Does it look like UV? Is it some sublime new color that has a totally different sort of meaning to the birds? I think, I think those are the kinds of questions that you know, we, we may never be able to answer, but by measuring colors in the wild, um, we might get a better clue. So, so in this study, we analyzed a very large data set of feather and flower colors to look for the prevalence of these non-spectral colors like UV red. And, and we've seen that they are common in the natural world. But one future direction uh, we, we'd like to explore is, okay, well, how are they using these colors? Do they show up in flowers? Do they show up in plumage that uh, males are using when they're trying to impress females? Uh, how you know how much variation in a population is there in the ability to learn about and discriminate these colors? Are older individuals better at our color vision tests? Um, can hummingbirds discriminate different spatial patterns instead of just these different colors? So I think I think we have a lot more work to do to really figure out not just how birds are are performing in these color vision experiments, but also using color in their natural habitats. To make good decisions about foraging, about navigating, about courtship, and we're just starting to get going there. So I think that um, our, you know, our experiments definitely suggest that these birds can see these colors. But how they're doing it, what genes are involved, um, how, you know, at, at what rates they learn about these colors—those are totally wide-open questions.
0: That's very interesting. Is that something that? by studying hummingbirds, we'll be able to generalize to other animals? Like, what, what other mysteries do you think that hummingbirds might help us solve?
2: Well, I think that's a great question. We think that most diurnal birds, birds that, you know, are active during the day, like hummingbirds, have the capacity to see these non-spectral colors. So we do think that our results are, are likely to generalize to other, other birds. But, you know, before we can be too confident, I think it'll be really important to extend this work to the other hummingbird and, and, and non-hummingbird species out there. You know, there are over 300 species of hummingbirds. Are they all capable of doing this? Are only some hummingbirds doing this? That's one question. Um, and then asking whether this is the case in, in other birds will be important as well. And uh, of course, you know, it's not hard to then start imagining, well, you know, birds are living dinosaurs, what did the what did the non non avian dinosaurs of the past see? Could they see these non spectral colors? Did they have these non spectral colors on their on their skin? So I think uh, I think there there's a lot that this kind of work might be able to um, to sort of shed light on uh, both looking into the evolutionary past, but also thinking about uh, the present. And I'd say that you know. What we're seeing in the Rocky Mountains with the broad-tailed hummingbirds is that this is a fragile population that definitely is already being impacted by climate change, and if we can't figure out how they see what colors they care about and how they're using those colors, uh, I think we'll, you know, we won't be able to make the best decisions in terms of uh, conservation and and protecting biodiversity. So that's something I'm really interested in too: is you know, how can we use this knowledge now to to make more informed decisions as we see these populations struggle.
0: That's awesome, yeah. uh, I would have a lot of questions just on that end, but it was really, really fun talking to you. That's very interesting. I'll definitely look into how we can use this sort of knowledge to help uh, the preservation of our wildlife. And thanks, thank you very much for coming here.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure, thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Cassie, for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This episode of The Highlights was written by Thiago Tarrafarella and Juram Ali. It was produced by Isabel Rodriguez under the 145th Managing Board of The Daily Princetonian. For more podcasts and other digital media from The Prince, visit www.dailyprincetonian.com. Many thanks to Professor Stoddard for speaking with us. To read more about her work, check out The Princeton Insights article covering her research, which can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening, and until next time...